listener exclusive. The creators of this podcast would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which it is recorded. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are the first storytellers of this land. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, as well as any Indigenous people who may be listening today. Hello and welcome to Two Guys One Cup Summer Edition. I'm Charlie Clawson and this is my club where I sit down with some well-known Aussies and chat to them about the clubs they love and sometimes hate. And uh, normally when I have a guest on in the preamble before the show, I sort of reassure them that, you know, you don't have to be an expert about football. You don't have to know that much. It's really about fandom. But uh, with my guest this week, he is a bona fide expert. He's one of Australia's best sports journalists. You might know him from footyology.com.au and his many battles online with trolls. It is, of course, Rowan Connolly or Roco. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me, Charlie. Great to be here. Uh, I, I am aware of this podcast and it's very good and I'm, I'm suitably honoured to be asked to be part of it. Well, I knew that I had to get someone on to talk about the Bombers, someone unfiltered, someone who doesn't hold back. And I've followed you online for, for many years. And it's fair to say that you are not shy when it comes to criticising your beloved Bombers. <laughs> now, they are a fascinating case to me because, you know, I, I barrack for a small Victorian club, one that has always been bullied by a team like Essendon. And then what has happened over the last 10 years to this club, I'm really interested to get to your take because for me, it seems like a lot of the issues are psychological at the Bombers. Like they didn't lose a lot of sponsors. They had a pretty steady board. But because of what happened with the supplement saga, it feels like they are still living in the shadow of that scandal. Would you agree? Yeah, I think that's a really accurate summation. Um, you know, look, going back further, I mean, this club, uh, I guess people of your vintage, and uh, here's where I make myself sound really old, um, you know, they have had various peaks and troughs over their history. And I mean, I, I grew up barracking for them in the 70s and until <laughs> the recent sort of two-decade premiership drought, that was their arguably their most barren period. So, and then they, of course, Sheedy came to the club and transformed the club. Really, you know, in some ways you can argue that this malaise has been um, sort of on the go ever since Sheed's left as coach uh, and even a, a bit before that. But, you know, in, in your time reference, I guess we're, we're going back to the scandal and no doubt that now the baggage is far more psychological than actual because, um, you know, this was a club that was seen to, or not seen to, it did, it, it got way ahead of itself. Again, I go back to post-2000, you know, Essendon wins the 2000 flag, they're the dominant club of the league, and they just got, uh, they got too big a head, to be perfectly frank. You know, they, they busted the salary cap and, and that cost them four premiership players in two years. They set their sights on uh, becoming the, quote, Manchester United of the AFL. What bullshit that was. Now, 
In the meantime, their football, actual football expenditure and facilities uh, sort of plummeted. So they really took their eye off the ball and then, and and I guess you can, can argue that sort of paved the way for the disaster of the supplement scandal because they were playing catch-up and in the end they got sick of, you know, it taking too long and tried to expedite the process with disastrous results and then post that, and, and again, uh, you'll discover here I'm fairly long-winded in getting to the point, um, we had this sort of over-cor- overcorrection. So, you know, it became all about, you know, we've got to be squeaky clean, we've got to not rock the boat. So you had, you know, the certain irony of, I guess, um, a guy like Lindsay Tanner, who I've got a lot of time for Lindsay, but Lindsay became chairman of Essendon and, you know, everyone thought, oh, great, a poly, you know, he's, he's not going to mess around. But instead it was it was actually the other way. And everything Essendon did was sort of inoffensive and calculate, you know, sort of um, focus grouped to within an inch of its life, you know, and again sort of took their eye off the ball to the point where, the actual football performance became secondary. And I got real, I, I was one of a, a lot of Essendon sports who got really pissed off about this. So you, you know, you you lose another game and five seconds after you've been belted by 10 goals, you're getting an email flogging your cheap discount furniture and this sort of stuff. And, um, you know, then the, the COVID year 2020, when the hub stuff happened on the Gold Coast, that was a disaster. You had a disconnect between the playing group and the administration. I think the move to um, the hangar um, hasn't helped. You know, it's a, it's a, it has been a fairly soulless environment, one created without sort of giving the fan base a thought to the extent where they're only now putting in some seats at the training grounds for fans to sit on if they go and watch training, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, having said all this, I'm actually quite optimistic about this new regime, new football department, et cetera, et cetera. I think finally um, the right sort of areas are being concentrated on. Famous last words, but given (laughs) given how shithouse most of the last 20 years has been, um, I am reasonably optimistic. You are talking to a, a Saints fan. I lived in constant optimism and constant hope. So, like, don't worry about it. You had your 150th year last year. It was probably one of your worst years ever. I feel like the Saints are probably destined for a, a similar year this year, but we can only live in hope. The thing that really kind of, um, uh, you know, from an outsider's perspective, looking at the Bombers in the last 10 years was after the supplement scandal and, you know, John Warsfold's brought in to kind of, like you say, uh, handle sort of media relations and just be inoffensive and just a steady hand, you know, to keep the ship steady. It seemed like things, I was anticipating a really quick bounce back because Adrian Dodoro got on the case, suddenly you're getting these fantastic free agents, you know, you're a destination club, you're getting, you know, free agents nominating the Bombers, you seem to be going well at the draft. And all the elements seemed to be in place, but it didn't come together. And that's why, you know, I'm so fascinated because it's, uh, you know, Watching the Saints botch two grand finals in a row, 09 and 10, you could sort of see it in the playing group in the following two years before Ross Lyon left. They were burnt out, you know. And then I've, I've read sort of Nick Revolt talk about it afterwards where he said, you know, you sort of sacrifice everything to get to the peak of the mountain when you, and you get so close and then it all falls away. Like it's very hard to bounce back. Do you think it was a similar instance at the Bombers where it's like, yeah, look, you can sort of 
rearrange the deck chairs and everything. But if the ship is sinking or it is like, you know, been through something horrendous, you have to actually start at the ground up. I think both those cases, and look, St Kilda, you know, I'm not trying to piss in your pocket here, but I mean, they were just so unlucky. They, they were they were clearly the best That's team. That's not pissing my pocket. No. That is damning with the faintest uh, well, praise possible. They, they, they were clearly the best team of 09. Yeah. And then 2010, just to hang in there as long as I did without having Rewalt for half a season and, mm. you know, were, what, four goals up in a grand fi- at half time of a grand final. And uh, as, you know, folklore now says, they lost two flags, one by a toe poke and one by a, a bizarre bounce to the footy. So, you know, that, it, again, it, it's a classic example of how you have to have a, the gods have to be on your side. Essendon's case, I think there's a real obvious, you know, line in the sand moment and it, it is at the end of 2017. So Warsaw comes on board 2016. They're playing a virtual reserve side because of all the suspensions. The players come back. 2017 actually had a, a pretty reasonable year and um, got into the ace, got absolutely pantsed by Sydney up at the SCG. That was the moment, though, and I know this for a fact, some, some sort of harder heads on the board of the time were very insistent that, okay, good effort, but we're still a mile off the pace in terms of a flag. We've got to keep building that list. There are real deficiencies on that list. And there was a bit of toing and froing, I think. And I think, again, the more commercially driven executive was sort of more concerned about, you know, holding their place commercially. So we're happy as long as we're competitive, whereas the footy guys are sort of saying we might have to go back a little bit to go forward. And this was the moment when they went out and they traded in uh, Stringer, Saad and Smith and then the following year went out and got um, uh, Shield. And, you know, the more realistic, if you like, elements were saying, no, no, don't trade it out our choices. We need to keep building this list. So uh, then you had a, a, a bit of a kerfuffle about game style. So 2018, they tried to sort of get a bit too cute with how they were playing, lost six of their first eight games, got their act together after that, but it was too late. The damage was done. 2019, better again, make the finals again, but again get whipped in the in the elimination. So this is sort of up and down thing, but the sum total of it is that the best they could ever seem to achieve was bottom of the eight finishes, which in terms of building your list are a cancer because you end up with these sort of nondescript draft picks, which you can't do a lot with either in terms of selecting or trading, and you're always looking to just keep topping up and topping up. Look, the really good clubs can do it. You know, the trick, obviously, is to be able to develop younger talent at the same time as staying competitive. You know, Geelong has been just superb. Sydney have done it pretty well. Hawthorne did it. Hawthorne did it pretty well for a while, but it even caught up with them in the end and probably is again now. So it's a really fine art list management. And I think Essendon, by and large, at that moment, it was a bit of a fork in the road and they took the bloody wrong road. <laughs> so I'm fascinated too. Like last year, there was a lot of talk around, obviously, you know, Ben Rutten. It was just a, just so many points through the season at which, you know, he could have lost his job until. And I did pull up this article and I highlighted this sentence because it's probably one of the most damning sentences I've ever read about a football club talking about your loss to Port Melbourne in round 22. 
this is from um, the innersanctum.com.au. The sentence is the Port, performance. Port, uh, I'll just got to chip in there. Port Adelaide, not Port Melbourne. Oh, sorry, Port Adelaide. They were, they were playing so badly at that stage, they probably would have lost to Port Melbourne. Well, that, that leads to this sentence, which is the performance in itself was unbefitting of a professional sports team, which yeah. is, is probably a harsher criticism. And so that gets the members and the coterie and all the sort of powerful, you know, um, supporters of the Bombers really fired up. Yeah. But tell me about who these, not like in the individuals, you don't have to name names, but sort of collectively, what is the identity of the Bombers supporters? Uh, I'll give you an example. So when I had Adam Zwar on to talk about Carlton, he said, mm. oh, yeah, you know, that there is a real sense of entitlement with Blue supporters. Like the mm. last 20 years has been very hard for them to take. And that's why when they get close to finals, they don't, da 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 you know, the yep. chants start up. Yep. What is the collective identity of Bombers supporters, do you think? Uh, well, I, I think, you know, you know, people would hate being compared to Carlton, but I think the um, the DNA of, of modern-day Carlton and Essendon is very similar in that they are both almost hamstrung by historical success. It, it lifts the expectations to ridiculous heights. That's your problem, Ro. You've got yeah. to go for a club with no success and <laughs> yeah, well, your expectations get tempered. Well, well it, it doesn't hurt to have that, you know, <laughs> albeit it, it, it creates a painful preceding 100 years. But <laughs> but like I said, I mean, I, you know, the Essendon I grew up with wasn't a successful club. It was a fairly mediocre, nondescript club. And in a way, that's sort of what they've gone back to. Um, but... Because of the shady era and the enormous success of the 80s slash 90s, I think that that does heighten that expectation and and you put that on top of the the sort of ingrained uh, DNA again. But mm. Essendon historically, yeah, big club, successful club, got that sort of, they're a bit of a, I don't know, I've heard them described variously as a, you know, a, a Freemason sort of club and a, right. uh, in religious terms, you know, a, a, a sort of a, a, an austere sort of Baptist sort of organisation. Right. I'm an atheist, so that means nothing to me. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, I'm intrigued by the Freemason element, though, the secret uh, society, because well, it does sort of feel like there is a, a shadowy group behind the scenes, like, when, you know, they made that late play for Alistair Clarkson. Yeah. And, like, the entire footy public was like, what are you doing? Like, this seems crazy. Like, if they had pulled it off, sure, you know, uh, with the benefit of hindsight, they're geniuses, what a bold move. They have got they threw their hat in the ring. Yeah. But at the time, it felt like everyone's like, you've left your... And it was humiliating. I mean, when mm. Alistair Clarkson came out and said, you know, look, I would have been interested, but, you know, they approached me far too late. Like, yeah. God, like that was just adding insult to injury. It, no, you're, you're right, it was. But, um, yeah, look, even, you know, in my youth, it, it was a club seen to have undue influence exerted upon it by people not directly involved with the club, be they patrons, right. rich supporters, former players, and that's always been the case. I mean, even when Kevin Sheedy was at his absolute peak as a coach, he never had it that comfortable there. There are always people sort of, and, <laughs> and I'm sort of grinning here because at one stage I was sort of one of them. I was gunning for Sheeds a few times during that <laughs> tenure. Um, you know, he he never had a completely comfortable run at it until the end when ironically probably needed to have a bit of heat put on him. Yeah. But, yeah, you know, it's a club that has, has been followed by some wealthy people, wealthy people who like to exert influence, and then 
it's now got a far bigger cross-section of socioeconomic groups mm. because of that enormous success, but also because of the way, and Sheeds is responsible for a lot of this, it, it deliberately spread its wings as a club, you know. So in the early 80s, so going up to the top end and playing practice games against Indigenous mm. sides, et cetera, et cetera. So you've got, I remember, you know, in the in the 90s, late 90s, people used to say, oh, Essendon are the uh, the groupies club, you know. So you had all these screaming girls, you know, barracking for the Bombers. So you've got them. You've got pissed off old farts like me. You've got, I remember when I was a kid and, uh, you know, I was in the cheer squad there for a while, but... I remember, uh, to me, the typical Essendon supporter was this, like, 16-, 17-year-old teenager who'd turn up with a duffel coat with Led Zeppelin and, and deep purple, um, you know, um, signs on their duffel coat and badges and stuff. You know, there's something slightly menacing about being an Essendon supporter. A hundred percent. Like, anecdotally, growing up in the 80s, you know, getting into footy in the 80s, Carlton supporters and Bombers supporters were always the bullies at either my footy clubs I played at or the um, or at a high school. Like, especially Bombers supporters, there was a real, like, Carlton fans were kind of arrogant in that sort of blue blood cliche, but yep. Essendon fans had a bit of mongrel. I don't know if it was kind of the Western suburbs element of it. No, 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 was... I, I think that's spot on. I mean, I, look, I've, I've grown up, I'm your classic Chardonnay socialist, Charlie. I've grown <laughs> up in East Melbourne. We, my right. family were the token sort of curiosities of East Melbourne. But that I know that those areas, you know, Keelor and, uh, you know, Airport West, Strathmore, mm. et cetera, et cetera, a little bit menacing. I always remember the Could Have Been Champions used to describe Essendon supporters as Collingwood fans without the sense of humour. <laughs> <laughs> well, I went to Windy Hill once as a kid and I think that was, I can't remember, I mean, look, there's a lot of drubbings the Saints got in the late 80s, but it was, it, it was, Horrifying. Like for a child, I'm surprised I continued following football after it. It was not just what happened on the field, but being in the ground. Like I, I went to Victoria Park, I went to Windy Hill, but I reckon Windy Hill was a more hostile environment. And I do remember too, was it, there's a classic photo from, I think it's the 70s, maybe the 80s of the Essendon, the old lady leaning across the fence and hitting the player with her umbrella. <laughs> It, it, look, I, I I can guarantee you whatever game you're talking about, I would have been there because, you know, I, I went every week and I had reserve seats and whatever. But oh, gee, I get all nostalgic when you talk about the old suburban venues because it, they sort of framed your um, your sort of culture as a club supporter in a 100%. way. And, yeah. and, you know, one of the reasons I, I am so passionate about footy and grew up so passionate about it was not just the football, it's that cultural experience. The thing about, you know, as a kid, you know, I, I was going unattended or with my mates, you know, from a, a very early age, you know, younger than 10. Imagine mm. letting a kid do that now. <laughs> and because I lived in East Melbourne and I had to go to Essendon, I'd, I'd get a tram and two trains across town. But you'd be going out to these places you'd never otherwise go, you know, the Western yeah. Oval or... Victoria Park or Arden Street or, you know, Moorabbin. Mm. And they all had the, a different vibe and a, the supporters had a different sort of, you know, uh, a feel about them. And some of the stuff that happened to me at Suburban Grounds, you know, I, I got shoved up against a brick wall and, and, uh, by a, an adult when I was like 15 years old and this guy's about to absolutely belt the bejesus about me. I got, after Essendon beat Carlton in the 83 elimination final at Waverley, I started taunting this guy. What a dickhead. I started taunting this bloke and I got thrown over the bottom of a, of a car. 
Um, you know, I've, I've the game when Paul Salmon did his knee at Victoria Park, me and my mates rolled up and late and um, they'd already locked the gates. So we just bolted over the fence and got chased around the ground by the cops. Um, <laughs> you know, the cheer squad's coming around the ground at halftime with the blanket for coins. For coins you know, yeah. I, used, I used to pelt my coins at him and, and one day I hit this guy and he raced after me. <laughs> I've had one of my favourites is our, our reserve seats at Windy Hill were they were on the wing just below the TV cameras. And in fact, last year someone dug up footage. It's Essendon versus Carlton, Queen's birthday, nineteen eighty two. Gary Folds kicks this huge goal from about seventy five metres out, and the camera pans down to us below. And they're right, they're seventeen year old me going batshit crazy. But one of my favourites, our seats were. They were just elevated, but they were quite close to the fence. And one day, 1984, Brian Taylor in his last season at Richmond before he went to Collingwood. Richmond had hit the skids a bit. Essendon was absolutely belting him. It's pissing with rain. It's shit day. BT hasn't had a touch. And Taylor gets dragged and he's being uh, led around the boundary, you know, with a trainer wiping the mud off his eyes. And I just gave it to him. And he started climbing over the fence to come <laughs> after me. <laughs> <laughs> and I, when I started working with him on 3RW about 10 years ago, I reminded him of this and he goes, you, you. <laughs> <laughs> You're always stuck in his mind. So I didn't realise young Ron Connolly was such a menace. <laughs> like, oh, it sounds no, like you were the I, worst. I, I, not just young Ron Connolly, mate. No, <laughs> I, I was feral. No, I, I was really stupid about it. Look, I've, I've – yeah. I don't know why I always tell these stories that embarrass myself and make me look stupid, but I've had I've had some absolute shockers. I mean, um, even in the press box, like uh, 1999 preliminary final, painful memory for Bombers supporters. So I'm sitting there writing the the story of how Carlton have, you know, nutted Essendon by a point. Essendon, you know, certainties to be in the grand final, don't even get there. Um, we had those little... Um, NECs, they were called these little laptop things. God, they were shit ass. And you could only mm. see about six lines of type and they always froze. Anyway, I've just about finished this bloody piece, just want to get out of there and the thing's frozen on me. And I just spat it. I just picked up the thing and just frisbeed it <laughs> against the wall of the press box and just smashed into several pieces. Another good one, 1990 grand final, Essendon loses to Collingwood. Collingwood breaks their 32-year premiership drought. My job that day was to, you know, I was riding on Essendon. They took pity on me and said, whatever happens, you write about the Bombers. And I had to, one of the duties with that was we had Simon Madden writing a column and I had to ghost it with him. So I'm out on the ground. They used to let the media out on the ground after the grand final. So I'm standing with the group of Essendon players all dejected while this sort of Collingwood chant echoes around the MCG. Finally, the players walk off. Simon's in tears. You know, he had, a, he had an absolute shocker that day. Damien Monkers killed him. He's in tears. I'm trying to console him, got my arm around him, whatever. We're walking up the race and these two sort of early 20-something Collingwood supporters just couldn't help themselves. So they've just won the flag. You know, shouldn't you be celebrating that? Instead, these guys are, are leaning through the cyclone race going, you're a girl, man, second worst player on the ground, you know, and Simon, Simon's sort of, you know, sort of sobbing a bit harder and I just lost the plot. So I've, I'm wearing a suit because I've been to the AFL lunch. I'm climbing up the cyclone wire fence and punching these guys through <laughs> the fence until an Essendon support, uh, an Essendon official actually dragged me off the race. <laughs> 
Hey, while I'm on a roll here, can I tell you one yeah. more? So another. Yeah, please. This is amazing. Right. 93, the year of the baby bombers. That's that's probably my favourite. By the way, any yeah. of these, if you did any of this stuff today, you would be like arrested, cancelled, oh. career done. Well, funnily you mentioned that because the 1991, the Sunday before that was the VFA grand final between Springvale and Williamstown and I was a bit of a wooly supporter and I was sitting in the stand with the then age VFA writer, Nick Johnston, big shout out to Nick if he's listening, and uh, I got in this running battle with a Springvale supporter and, of course, one, one of the famous uh, VFA grand finals, uh, Williamstown's come from five, six goals down and Billy Swan, Dane Swan's dad, has kicked the winning goal. Anyway, the, Willie's got up and won in the last second and I've gone back and given it to this run back up the stairs of the grandstand to give it to this Springvale supporter. And all his mates thought I was I was going to, quite rightly, thought I was going to belt him. Well, I wasn't and I planted a kiss on him but they've all piled <laughs> on top of me and there's this big stacks on and I extracted myself and walked away again and then this hand comes down on my shoulder and this off-duty cop was going to arrest me and, and charge me for I don't know what. But I did Provoking some, an, an orgy, oh, it sounds like an, an all-guy orgy. Well, I, I did. Well, it could have been fun. I did a, uh, did some serious talking and, and got out of it. Um, but, yeah, the uh, fair to say my age colleague wasn't overly amused with that. But, I mean, yeah, that, that was the sort of stupid shit that I did. Um, and, yes, none of that would pass muster now, which is probably one of the reasons I'm a bit of a dinosaur. I see you online and you don't mind a bit of a stoush with uh, there. I, I see you going to battle with cookers a, a fair bit on Twitter. And I'm like, gee, I, I wonder like where, where Roe finds the energy for this. But now I get it. <laughs> now I'm getting, well, a, I'm yeah. getting a complete picture. I, I must admit the, the Elon Musk era Twitter is starting to depress me a bit because it's yeah. sort of like, I, I must admit, I, I sort of, part of me enjoys the battle with a troll who's at least got a bit of wit or, or can make a point or whatever. Whereas, Ever since Musk took over, this is, in my opinion, that his worst crime is just the dumbing down of it. Where the trolling I get now is sort of like, you're a poo-poo head, you know. It's sort of that that level. But you're right. Look, politics. Uh, you know, I'm I'm quite political. You know, my I'm I'm a progressive. It always makes me laugh when people say, you know, I'm an extreme leftist or whatever, because I'm I'm actually not. You know, I'm I'm economics, I haven't really got much of a clue. I'm big on sort of social justice and stuff. And I... Yeah, you're also a big fan of street justice, it sounds like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know what? Like, just if I would just be serious for a moment, yeah. I think my my family has always been politically active. But I think one thing that has sort of emboldened my politics is the demise of, of the discourse hand-in-hand hand with the demise of mainstream media mm. and the um, uh, the agendas which have crept into media and, and in particular News Corp and Rupert Murdoch. I mean, just a pox on that family. They have... I went to um, a funeral last Friday of a former colleague of mine, Tony Burke, a, a former age chief racing rider, one of the great gentlemen of the industry. And, and it, gee, it was a, a fantastic funeral. But... Any gathering like that now, you end up just bemoaning how far the standards have dropped and the sort of agenda pushing that goes on in the media now, it drives me insane. And that's, I think, you know, because News Corp has worked so closely hand in hand at stages with previous Liberal governments and whatever, it's just, it's made me a bit feral, but now I'm not doing it in 
uh, terraces or grandstands. I'm doing it uh, via Twitter well, and, and, and my targets yeah. are slightly different. Well, it's interesting because I, I, I feel like the, there's parallels with like how you feel about, you know, these big media conglomerates and also, you know, you're bemoaning the, the, what's happened to like suburban football. And I hear this a lot from footy fans. Like I actually think the game, you know, just from a spectacle is actually in pretty good shape. Like, uh, you know, players are more professional than ever. You know, you don't, I have to sit through like a, a game being played in a glue pit like Moorabbin anymore. Like it's a really high standard. But you can level criticism at the way the game is administrated. Like Mick Warner is a big advocate of that. I love the game. I just hate the way it's being run. How do you feel about the way the game's been run? Look, Mick, you know, shout out to Mick because his book, um, you know, The Boys Club is a fantastic, fantastic. book. And, and I agree yeah. with most of what he says about that. You know, when he says that, I think he's probably talking about the hands-on administering of the game. My criticism's more that, you know, uh, ephemeral sort of cultural stuff, which in fairness to them, it's not necessarily easy to steer how that goes because it's a bit, you know, it's a bit sort of nondescript, isn't it? And a lot of those cultural things, I think, too, it's a, it's a bit of a case of um, you don't know it till it's gone, you know, so... But some of them I think you could see coming. Like, for instance, you know, Waverley. Uh, I think that, ironically, because that was a soulless thing when it started, but that had become a bit of a, a footy public touchstone and they, they knew that and yet they were prepared to forsake it anyway to build Docklands, which hasn't really won people over. I, I don't like their cavalier attitude to how football history is treated. And, you know, their, their media strategies now particularly, they're so obsessed with kids and people who aren't necessarily diehard footy fans. And it makes sense to a, an extent, but you what you do is you piss off your sort of core audience and they become less diehard about things. Um, you know, yeah. you know what I mean. Like you get on Instagram and you, you see clubs' Instagram accounts and it'll be they'll set a camera up and the players will come up to the camera and go, oh, so, so knackers, uh, which player would you like to take out to Valentine's Day? Oh, well, I'd take Shags because, you know, he's got a big donger or, you know, something <laughs> crap like that. But when they've got all this fantastic historical stuff, archival footage and whatever, yeah. and they never use it. The TV networks are the same. And now, I mean, the greatest irony, what about, you know, look, if it wasn't Channel 7, it'd be someone else. But Channel 7 is the official AFL broadcaster. They don't actually have an AFL program beyond the live broadcast because that's that's all they care about and that's all they want to invest resources in. And and that's becoming a big part of it too. Like radio stations, yeah. their coverage is sort of being paired back. I know this for a fact. You know, one of the big stations, they're pulling back their coverage big time this year. They don't want to spend as much on it. It doesn't rate as much. It's all about cost effectiveness and whatever. But the thing with the history stuff and whatever, that that eats away at people's capacity to learn about and love the game. And, and I'm big on this. I think that my generation um, had as passionate a love affair with the game as any. And I think successive generations, and it's, look, there are a variety of reasons for this, but I think younger generations aren't as emotionally attached to anything as ours was. And I think they have to be yeah. really careful that the attachment between the supporter and the game doesn't become fragile enough that it can easily break. You're right. I haven't really thought about it like that. But with, the, I guess, the commercialisation or the professionalism of the game, 
moving away from grassroots, you know, I had the same experience as you, like, you know, would go to Moorabbin as a kid and, you know, you, there's just this bunch of misfits and oddballs that I only knew within the confines yep. of that ground. Well, the animal enclosure, you know, the that's animal iconic. Yeah, I, had a cigarette, I had a cigarette put out on the back of my head when I was 11 years old, <laughs> but not as a sign of disrespect, more as just a convenience. Like I was <laughs> short enough, this guy was like, I'll just butt out on this kid's head. I thought it might be an initiation. <laughs> no, 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 it was a sign of respect, I believe, Robin. But, you know, when I, my wife is from the UK and, and, and so she didn't, she doesn't really, she's not into any sport really, but particularly like AFL is like a foreign language to her. And, you know, me trying to explain the history, especially trying to explain why I barrack for a club that's won one flag in 150 years. Like, it's, I have to explain the whole kind of journey of, you know, you know, going to the footy with my dad and then my mates. And, you know, I was there for this and I was there for that. And there's mm. like real poetry <clears throat> and beauty in this. It's, it's not just about watching guys chase a, a ball around. Like, it's a sense of belonging, a sense of community. I had Titus on a couple of years ago. Yeah. And he said he's always very defensive when people, you know, rag on football or rag on sport as being, well, it's pointless anyway. It's just guys chasing a ball around. He's like, yeah, but fucking everything's pointless. Like <laughs> we decide to imbue things with meaning. You know, we imbue art with meaning. We imbue music with meaning. Mm. And this is just another thing we imbue with meaning. But I think you're right. In the same way that you look at music now, and it's all on streaming platforms and you don't have that kind of physical media and that experience of going into a record shop and buying your first album with your own money and looking at the album cover and, you know, looking at the back and then opening it up and having this real kind of um, visceral experience. Now it's like, well, I'll just download this thing straight to my phone and listen to it. And there's there's none of that. I, I, I wonder if in 20 years time, people's relationship like, if you're going to be in young Saint supporters, I had to have that experience of going to Moorabbin. What else is going to draw them in? Like, it's not the history of the club. It's certainly not like, you know, the the, the recent history of the club. No, no, spot on. And, and but uh, you, you can sort of apply this to a lot of things, really. Uh, you know, another factor with sport particularly, and look, I've got a, I've got a 27-year-old daughter who loves Essendon, goes every week, is red hot on it. I've got a 20-year-old son who also supports Essendon, but he's a massive soccer fan. He's a big um, Chelsea fan of the EPL. But kids now, their relationship with sporting teams, so, you know, in my day, I dare say even your day, you know, you've got a an AFL team that you go and watch in the flesh and that's probably it. You know, in my day you, you had uh, the VFL, the VFA, you might have an English soccer team because the big match was on once a week, but, you know, the big match came on on a Monday night and the highlights on the big match were from the previous weekend, not the yeah. weekend just gone. Whereas now, because of the internet and, and streaming and, and whatever, like a, a, a kid can barrack for, you know, the Detroit, I'm trying to think of the NHL team, the Detroit whatever they're called, yeah. and have exactly the same sort of connection as he has with the St Kilda Footy Club. It's mm. just that they're different sports because he might yeah. he's probably more likely to watch St Kilda in the same way that he watches an overseas team from halfway around the world, you know? So well, the, 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 the advantage that Aussie Rules has is that it's with the only country that plays it. Like the problem with the NBL is that you can watch the NBA. The problem with, yeah. you know, uh, soccer in Australia is yeah. you can watch the EPL. Our one advantage, as long as we don't export this game, and we've tried the China experiment, uh, New Zealand. Oh, was that uh, one of those worked. games? I went to one of those Shanghai games. <laughs> oh, did you really? Which oh, one? It was shit out. Um, <laughs> 2018, Port Adelaide and Gold Coast. So I was actually in Hong Kong on a holiday, and my partner said, Oh, 
hey, big surprise, I've got us tickets for uh, Gold Coast Port Adelaide. And I just went, oh, great. You know, like one of those games you wouldn't cross your backyard to watch. And it, it drizzled and Port killed them and it was utterly forgettable. Were there any curious locals or was it all just expats? Oh, I reckon it was 90% expats. There are, there are a few locals probably bust in for the occasion. We spent the game sitting with the Port Adelaide parents, you know, the, the Eberts and the uh, Byrne Joneses, um, and I, I was just talking to them. I hardly even watched the game from memory. So weird experience. But, you, yeah, you're right. I mean, the fact that it is such a, 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 a unique game to us is in a way a saviour of it. Yeah, funnily enough, yeah. on on footy, oh, this isn't a cheap plug, but on footyology last week, ran this story by a footy historian called Andrew Ayres about this American guy called Peixoto, who was like a, uh, he was like a philanthropist but a promoter, and there was a real push to take Australian football to the US. This is pre First World War, and this guy yeah. Peixoto had this troop of young kids who um, had trouble backgrounds but were all good athletes and they were learning to play footy and they came out here on a tour and played a, a whole series of games in all the major cities and won some and, and really right. picked it up. And, I've, and there was a real opportunity for the game to be taken internationally but the First World War basically killed it off. So great story if you're interested in footy history on, on footyology. I was saying that actually sounds like a great premise for a film. Let's get Christopher Nolan to direct it. It'll be a blockbuster. That's true. That's true. <laughs> All right, Ray, we'll wrap things up. Uh, as we do on every episode of the uh, My Club, we get our guests to predict, and this is an odd ranking system that we only do on Two Guys, One Cup. Do you see the Bombers finishing top six, middle six, or bottom six? I don't want to nail you down to a position, but where in those three brackets do you see the Bombers finishing 2023? Oh, thank God there's some flexibility there. Um, <laughs> I, look, I'm going middle six because I think, you know, you're talking about a list which season before last was good enough to make finals. I do think there are some big holes in that list still. I don't think it's as good a, a list as some do. However... I really do rate Brad Scott as a coach um, mm. and I think they'll really tighten up defensively and that's the word I'm hearing. They've really worked hard on their defensive stuff. So I think there's enough talent there. I think they'll get a bit of a new coach bounce and that'll be enough to at least have them in contention for the eight. Um, but I, I'm not game enough. I certainly wouldn't have them top six. The problem with the ladder now is any anyone who does a, puts a ladder together, you know, you, you, there's a valid sort of argument for 16 of 18 teams to make the eight, you know, and then you end yeah. up saying, oh, they're all right, they're all right, and then you think, well, who, I've got to have someone down the bottom. Who's it going to be? So I reckon the Bombers can avoid bottom six, but I see them definitely somewhere in that middle group. And if you want to uh, find out more of Roco's opinions, you can go to footyology.com.au. We'll put a link in the episode description below. Thanks so much for coming on the show, and I'm so glad. Well, I was going to say that you've mellowed in your older age, but it sounds like it's just it's moved to an online version. Nah, same old angry bastard, Charlie. <laughs> you just find different uh, objects of your ire. But, um, no, nah, it's been great having a chat. Thanks a lot for having me. We are to go.